But I need to ask this question. How could it be that God's people have strayed so far from the truth? The scene we're seeing is in 1 Kings 8, which we're going to get to in just a moment. But it's all of Israel, all of God's chosen people, that have come to worship Baal and Asherah. And they're bowing down and they're adoring. And there's one prophet. His name is Elijah. And he shows up. And he proclaims who God is and shows God's power. But, but how is it that Israel got to this place? There's been 208 years of spiritual decline and unprecedented immorality. There's 38 kings that ruled in Israel and Judah, all in the Old Testament. And out of those five, maybe sort of good. Well, Rick, what does sort of good mean? Sort of good means they obeyed God. They listened to God. God was honored. Well, King Solomon started this spiral downward and turned his heart away from God by worshiping other gods beside Jehovah. Remember, that is the key. It wasn't that Solomon actually stopped worshiping God, Jehovah, the Lord. He also was worshiping other gods. Well, Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight and refused to follow the Lord completely. The Lord was angry with Solomon, was heartbroken, and consequences were to follow. Let me ask you another question. What would you do if you were God at this point? The nation that you chose to reflect your character to the world has failed miserably. You're unable to even differentiate between, well, God followers and everyone else. Well, what God does is shocking. Sin is just judged, but he pursues the wandering and the rebellious. It has been a gracious pattern since the garden. And for many of you who have been with us, this is our 15th chapter, or 15th week in the story. And we are trying to, well, understand the God of the Bible. And from the very beginning, God desired and created mankind to have fellowship with each one of us. And God put mankind in a perfect garden. And everything was good for a while. But then, what happened? Man decided, well, God's rules are a little archaic, or God's rules really don't apply to me, or God's... And there was all kinds of justification that happened. Eventually, they, they disobeyed God. And this went on. And over the years, God continually promoted, encouraged, and strengthened, and showed how faithful he was. 
And he sent prophets and leaders. And there was Moses and there was Joshua. And then the judges came. And then the kings were, were at right now. But God continually said, hey, if you listen to me, I am God. I am creator. I am the one that knows what's best for you. If you listen, you will thrive. If you listen, you will know how to live. Well, God sends eight prophets to the northern kingdom to faithfully, well, share God's message of redemption. Remember last week, if you're with us, the kingdom split. The Is- Israel went into two camps. There's a northern ten tribes called Israel and a southern two tribes called Judah. We're going to be focusing this morning on the northern ten tribes. We are going to sprint through 16 chapters today in parts of four books, and I will never do it justice, but I'd like to pick out some amazing tidbits on this journey. So if you would, let's uh, first pray, and then we're going to dig in. Father, we thank you for your grace, and we thank you for your word, and we thank you, dear God, that we can come together and worship you. Lord, if we're honest, you are a gracious God, and you patiently endure some of our behavior and even rebellion. It is all judged eventually, God, but, but it's not judged because you are some evil or some killjoy. It is judged because you know what's best for us. You desire as your kids to experience all that you have for us. And we pray, Father, that that would happen even better today. Lord, I pray for our students and our staff up at Silver Birch this weekend. I thank you, God, that they have an opportunity to go up and to meet with, well, a whole lot of other converged students And they're enjoying the weather, and they're enjoying the activities, but God, they are learning to abandon, well, themselves. And we pray, Father, that even now, as as they are meeting together and worshiping you, that your spirit would be so abundantly active in their lives, and you would begin to change their minds and their hearts, and they would come back literally on fire. We pray that, Father. We also pray for other churches in our area. We pray specifically today, Father, for Torch of Faith. And we ask you, dear God, that you would work in their congregation, that they would be salt and light in our community. I also pray, Father, for Harvest Bible Chapel. Lord, I pray at this time that you would be with those elders and their leadership. And we ask you, dear God, that you would use them in a mighty way. And we ask, Father, that they would hear your voice and respond so they would continue to make the impact that they have made over these years. We now, Lord, open your word. And we want to learn from you. We want to learn from those that walked with you and those actually that ran. God, give us courage. Give us strength. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's begin with the prophet Elijah. Turn your Bibles with me to 1 Kings chapter 17, or your flat screens, 
It's in the beginning or close to the beginning in the Old Testament. And we're going to be looking at chapters 17, 18, and 19. But what we find out, there actually are not a whole lot of chapters about this prophet in spite of how popular and how powerful that Elijah was. Elijah seemed to be quite fearless, quite obedient, and quite prayerful. The one thing we know is that when Elijah heard from God, he obeyed. I'm going to read from 1 Kings chapter 17, starting at verse 1. Now Elijah, who was a Tishbite, from Gilead, told King Ahab, As surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, the God I serve, there will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give the word. Then the Lord said to Elijah, Go to the east and hide by the Sherith Brook, near where it joins the Jordan River. Drink from the brook and eat what the ravens bring you, for I have commanded them to bring you food. So... And again, if you underline Bibles or circle things, I would circle this. I think it's important. So Elijah did, as the Lord told him, and camped beside Cherith Brook, east of Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat each morning and evening, and he drank from the brook. But after a while, the brook dried up, for there was no rainfall anywhere in the land. Do you get the picture? Remember again, last week we talked a little bit about the Canaanite gods and how Baal or Baal is how we usually uh, at least pronounce this god, was, was, well, he was the mover and the shaker of all the Canaanite gods because he was the god of rain. And he would be the one technically that would bring the rain so the crops could grow. And so in an agricultural Uh, kind of scenario, it it was pretty important. And so he was a big deal. Well, what happens is uh, because of Ahab's rebellious spirit, King Ahab, Elijah goes to him. God says, you go. And you tell him this, there's not going to be any rain for for a year until I pray. Literally, we're going to find out it's three years. So Elijah went right to the king and said, I'm going to do what you say. But then as soon as he did, the Lord said, hey, I want you to run. I want you to go to the brook. I want you to camp out. And there I'm going to have ravens feed you. All right. That's all my instructions. That's it. Just go, sit, and feast. All right. Well, as the days went on, there's no rain, and the brook was nice and healthy, began to get smaller and smaller and smaller. And I'm sure at that time, eh, Elijah's kind of looking up, Lord, you said come here. Eventually, the brook dries up. If you look at verse 8 of chapter 17, then the Lord said to Elijah, Go and live in the village of Zarephath, near the city of Sidon. I have instructed a widow there to feed you. So he went to Zarephath. Whoa. Now you may not know much about Zarephath, but Zarephath was the Phoenician territory right outside of King Ahab's reign. 
In fact, there was a queen, one of his queens, the famous queen called Jezebel, that literally lived in this region. And so it's a little bit ironic that God sent Elijah to the place where Jezebel was from. Well, it's a very odd thing that happens. God provided for him. It was miraculous. He just had to sit by a brook. Eventually, the brook dried up. And he said, hey, I want you to go, and I want you to talk to a widow in Zarephath. And he did. He said, I want you to ask the widow for food. Now, it's really hard. Again, back in those days, and it's hard to understand, but, but there's no Social Security. And if you're a widow, it was tough. If you didn't have family take care of you, you begged and, and you hardly made it. Well, this widow wasn't set up well, but the Lord said that he had instructed the widow that there was going to be a prophet come and this prophet needed food. Elijah listened, went to a widow who was gathering some sticks. And Elijah said, hey, um, I'm Elijah, and I heard you're going to give me a feast. And the widow looks. says, excuse me, your God, and you can read this, your God told me you were going to come. But I want you to know, I'm gathering a few twigs right now. We're going to make a fire. I've got a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil. We're going to eat this. In other words, my son and I, and then we're going to die. I'm not sure how you would feel if you're Elijah. But I'm going like, God, did I hear you right? Like, you're, you just provided for me, but now you want me to go to a widow. And then Elijah does this. He goes, well, ma'am, I understand things look a little bad right now. Okay? But I want you to do that, and you feed me first. Like, seriously, this is a man of God? Little, little, this seems a little bit out of character at this moment. But what this woman didn't even understand is that Elijah went on, you feed me first, all right? And then you feed your son and yourself. But if you do that, if you do that, for the rest of the time there's a famine, there will always be flour in the jar and oil in the jar. You are kidding me! That... I give you all of my food. <laughs> and God's just going to, whoa, fill up my jars. Yep. Okay. Let's do it. And she does it. And the scriptures tell us that at that time, God was faithful. God was faithful. You know, I look at this. And actually, Elijah enjoyed God's provision two ways. Both of them required faith and obedience. Go sit in a brook and birds will feed you. Okay. Go to a lady. She's got one meal left. Ask her for it. You know what was really cool? If Elijah was disobedient, do you know that lady probably would have died? She had nothing. But what happens when we listen to God and we obey God? God takes care of the situations. I want to remind you of this. This is amazing. God provides often two ways. And this is important to understand. Sometimes God says, you go sit in a brook and you wait and I'm just going to take care of you. 
Sometimes God says, go talk to a widow, an unusual person, and ask for help. There are people, and again, as I work in different kinds of ministries, well, Rick, God will provide. I believe that. But remember, God provides two ways. Sometimes it's you sitting there and being really quiet, and that check just shows up in the mail. Other times it's saying, you know what, I have nowhere to go. I need some help. And God blesses the person that you literally ask. You say, no, I don't want to ask for help. I don't want to be a burden. You know what? The truth is, is that sometimes because of our arrogance or lack of understanding or lack of the time that we literally walk with God, we don't allow other people to be blessed when we ask. What's the key? You walk with God. You listen to God. You've got to hear God's voice. God doesn't work the same way. Then we go to 1 Kings 18. Whoa. Elijah trusts God. He meets Ahab and draws a line in the sand. This is an amazing story. It's a story that is it's unbelievable, really. And as we opened up the message, and you saw the little story uh, the super book, the story super, uh, super duper super book. Thank you. Thank you. The super book clip. And it gives you a little bit of an idea of what would happen, the majesty of this stuff, and how courageous Elijah was. He'd already seen God provide from ravens. He saw God keep filling up some jars. Cool. Now God said, go to Ahab. Whoa. Later, verse 1, chapter 18. In the third year of the drought, it's really dry, folks. The Lord said to Elijah, go and present yourself to King Ahab. Tell him that it will soon rain. So Elijah went to appear before Ahab. Oh, my. Can you imagine again this this king was all powerful. He was a king. And God says, go and talk. Well, he does. Let's, let's go literally what happened. Let's jump ahead to about verse 20. What happens is, is that he talks with Ahab. And as he's chatting with Ahab, he says, you know what, Ahab, I'll tell you what. Let's settle this thing once and for all. Why don't you bring all the priests and the priestesses over to Mount Carmel? I'll meet you there. We'll set up two altars, and we're going to find out once and for all who is God. You've been playing around a long time, Ahab, and it's time. Let's draw a line in the sand. Call all of Israel. Call your priests. Let's all meet together, and let's go there. And that's what happens in the verse 20, chapter 18. So Ahab summoned all the people of Israel and all the prophets to Mount Carmel. Then Elijah stood in front of them. And he said, how much longer are you going to waver, folks, hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, then follow him. But the people were completely silent. Wow. 
Can you imagine? And so many of you know this story. But for hours and hours, the priests and priestesses call upon the Baal. Nothing happens. Eventually, Elijah gets up. He prays to Yahweh, Jehovah, Jireh. And he pours and douses the whole sacrifice with water. And in an amazing display of God's power, fire comes. And eats up the sacrifice and the altar. And everybody there says they fall on their face. Oh, I can't imagine what that looked like. I can't. But God was pretty evident at that moment. And the scriptures say, shortly after that, rain did come. And shortly after that, Elijah was threatened by Jezebel. She was so ticked that all these prophets actually died. All right, were killed. And his faith wavers. You would think, again, Elijah, so strong, so courageous, and then this queen kind of threatens him. And the scriptures say that in spite of all the words Elijah ran, God still provided for him. You you need to read through this story. It's pretty amazing. But eventually, eventually God sees that Elijah's ministry is done. And I'm not sure it's because his faith wavered or if it was just done. But he told Elijah, he says, I want you to pass the baton. And I want you to be able to hand it off to another prophet, and his name sounds almost the same, Elisha. And the scriptures tell us that Elijah and Elisha were together. And in one unbelievable act of God's power, Elijah got on some chariots of fire, and he was taken off into the sky. As soon as that happened, the prophet Elisha took over. And we find out about Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 2 all the way to chapter 13. But we know this, is that Elisha was an amazing prophet. He did at least twice the amount of miracles that Elijah did, at least it's recorded that way. There's some odd stories. He cleaned up some some bitter water. He called some bears out of the field to attack some young mockers. He increased olive oil to a widow. He raises a boy from the dead. Food is multiplied. A leather, a leather, a leper is healed. There is a floating axe head. There are some things, again, you read and you go, whoa. But the one thing I'd like to do is focus when he saw a glimpse of the army of God. If you turn to 2 Kings chapter 6. Let me briefly give you again what happened. Israel was at war with the king of Aram. All right. And God used Elisha in a very unique way. Every time the king of Aram was going to attack Israel, Elisha would tell the king of Israel what would happen and they would be prepared. And it happened time and time and time again. And finally the king of Aram said, hey, what is going on? And he was saying, well, you know, I just want you to know there is a stoolie. 
all right, among Israel. And he's a prophet. And all he does is tell people exactly what we're going to (laughs) do. King of Aram said, that's it. Let's go get that guy. I'm going to send out my chariots and my warriors. Let's surround them and let's take care of them. And so they head to Dotham. Dotham was where Elisha lived. And it was a bad deal. All around the house, in fact, the city, there were hundreds, if not thousands, of warriors, all in chariots, all in garb, to get the prophet Elisha. Oh, my. They woke up one morning, and one of Elisha's servants came out, and, and he was so upset, saying, Elisha, 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 I'm telling you, look outside. <laughs> Whoa. A lot of sharp swords, a lot of spears, a lot of things. Woo. Well, Elisha, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And he just says, we're fine. We're fine. What do you mean, we're fine? Are, are you, like, we've seen the same thing. Come on. Look at First Kings. I'm sorry, Second Kings, chapter 6. Verse 15, when the servant of the Lord, or when the servant of the man of God got up early the next morning and went outside, there were troops and horses and chariots everywhere. Oh, sir, what what will we do now? The young man cried to Elisha. Don't be afraid, Elisha told him, for there's more on our side than theirs. At that moment, folks, without reading any longer, do you think maybe that servant thought Elisha was crazy? Like, are you serious? What have you been eating? It's, I don't get it. But this is so cool. Then Elisha prayed. Elisha prayed. As you read through this, and those who are reading through the story with us, every time you read that Elisha prays, I would circle it. You will see so many circles in the Scripture, how dependent he was on the Almighty God. And he said this, O Lord, open the eyes and let him see. The Lord opened the young man's eyes, and when he looked up, he saw that the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. We started singing a praise song this morning about the king of glory, the king of all the heaven's armies. And all Elisha did was say, Lord, open up my friend's eyes. He has no clue of all the power and all the majesty that you have. These soldiers are real, but you are bigger and you are better. And God, I have nothing to fear. And then he prays at that time and says, Lord, make them all blind. Boom. They're all blind. He walks out there. He says, hey, guys, follow me. I'll take you to where you need to go. Marches them to the capital city. Now, normally at this time, they would probably take out their Gatling guns and take care of them. 
But Elisha sees things differently, brings in this, this whole army of blind soldiers. And he says, Lord, open their eyes. They open their eyes and they find out they're in the enemy's capital city. Oh boy, we're in trouble. I'm pretty sure they took their weapons away at that time. But what does he do? He tells the king, he goes, give them a meal, feast, give them some food and send them home. Whoa, what is that? How come? Why do you work like this? You know, God uses supernatural, cataclysmic events to call us back. But God also uses his words. We're going to look at two more prophets very quickly. But they're both prophets that are important. When I was at Wheaton College, uh, I had a professor whose name was Dr. Samuel Schultz. And he was this older, white-haired gentleman. And when I came in and I transferred, there were some Bible courses that I had to pick up. And one of them was an Old Testament survey. And, and we would all go into Dr. Schultz's class. And I got to tell you, Dr. Schultz opened my eyes to what the Old Testament was saying. I wanted Dr. Schultz's God after his class. The way he spoke of these prophets and the way that he had walked with God and the way that he poured his heart out, I ended up loving the minor prophets and especially Moses. And you hear me talk about Deuteronomy all the time. It was this class that somehow I saw a little glimpse of how amazing our God is, and how faithfully he sent prophets and leaders so that we wouldn't forget it. You know, the book of Amos, if we just kind of look at this, Amos was a godly, obedient farmer. He was a shepherd, and he traveled north because God said, I want you to go and speak to the ten tribes of Israel. They're not listening to me. They're not walking with me. And if you kind of read through the Older Testament, you'll see prophet after prophet kind of share. But so many other prophets speak about redemption and restoration, and some even prophetic. But not Amos. Out of the nine chapters that Amos writes, there's only five verses at the very end that give any hope at all. Like a skilled surgeon, Amos cuts deep and addresses the cancer. He saw that Israel had no love for their neighbors. He saw that Israel had taken advantage of the under-resourced and the needy. He saw that Israel was self-focused and self-absorbed. And Amos went one step farther. He held the people accountable for their disgusting and diabolical behavior. He's basically saying you are not behaving like God followers at all. You are selfish. You care only about your own self and how you use and abuse people. And it's got to stop. God was going to bring judgment. Oh, their outer lives, in fact, at this point, looked pretty good. But the inside was full of decay. 
I'd like you to turn with me to Amos chapter 3. Amos chapter 3. And I'm going to read some, and those verses are all up there. And I'm, I'm going to read through some of, well, Amos's prophecy to this group of people that said, I don't care too much about God anymore. He said this, 3 verse 1. Listen to this message that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the entire family I rescued from Egypt. From among all the families on the earth, I have been intimate with you alone. That is why I must punish you for your sins. Verse 10. My people have forgotten how to do right, says the Lord. Their fortresses are filled with wealth taken by theft and violence. Turn over to chapter 5. Verse 4. Now this is what the Lord says to the family of Israel. Come back to me and live. Don't worship the pagan altars at Bethel. Don't go to the shrines at Gilgal or Beersheba. For the people of Gilgal will be dragged off into exile. And the people of Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Come back and live. Otherwise, he will roar through Israel like a fire devouring you completely. Look at verse 14. Do what is good and run from evil so that you may live. Not because I'm some kind of a killjoy. Then he says, the Lord God of heaven's armies will be your helper just as you have claimed. Hate evil, love what was good. Turn your courts into true halls of justice. Perhaps even then the God of heaven's armies will have mercy on you. On the remnant. And he goes on. And in chapter 7, very interesting, especially if you're any kind of a builder or you're any kind of a carpenter. Uh, But chapter 7, look at verse 8. And the Lord replied, I will test my people with a plumb line. I will no longer ignore their sins. Wow. I'm not sure if any of you have ever seen a plumb line. There's a plumb line. And it's one of the most useful things. And and again, I know there's some pretty nice electronic gizmos for um, uh, carpenters now. I get it. Okay. But ultimately, a plumb line tells you what is plumb. What's straight up and down. And God says this. He says, you know what? I'm going to use my plumb line. I'm going to hang this down. And you're going to know what is right and what is wrong. I don't have a curved plumb line. I just have a plumb line, and you will be judged. Chuck Swindoll, as I was studying in different places this week, he says this. The people during the time of Amos, they were drunk on their own economic success and intent on strengthening their financial position. The people had lost their compassion for one another, and particularly for the most vulnerable. Amos rebukes them because he saw Israel's lifestyle evident that they had forgotten God. Amos ought to help us simplify our lives. Amos knew that God loved us dearly. People were running, and they had to stop. Another prophet 
during this exact same time, up to these ten tribes that were just abandoning God like crazy, is the prophet Hosea. Turn with me to Hosea. It's a few books before. Amos, if you're there, all right? Now, some people, again, uh, as you hear this story, it's one of the oddest stories in all the world, but I think because of what Hosea experienced, he was maybe the most powerful preacher of all the prophets. If you've not read Amos, it's nine chapters. I'd encourage you to do that. If you've not read Hosea, it's 14 chapters. I encourage you to do it. But Hosea is a story of God's relentless love. Let's look at Hosea chapter 1. Look at verses 1 and 2. And the Lord gave this message to Hosea. All right? And this was the message, verse 2. When the Lord first began speaking to Israel through Hosea, he said to him, Go and marry a prostitute, so that some of her children will be conceived in prostitution. This will illustrate how Israel has acted like a prostitute by turning against God and worshiping other gods. And if you underline things in your scripture, so Hosea married Gomer. Wow. Wow. God, I, did, did, I, did I hear you right? You want me to go marry a woman with extremely loose morals. She's not going to be faithful at all. She's going to go out at night, and I don't even know really where she's going to end up. And you want me to love her? You want me to provide for her? You want me to... God, did I hear you right? Did I do that? God, do you know what I'm going to go through? I don't know when she's going to come back. I don't know... I don't know anything. Are you... Sure. But Hosea did that. Because this was going to be an unbelievable illustration of how God cares. Hosea's heart was broken day after day after day after day. Go to chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, Go and love your wife again. Even though she commits adultery with another lover, she will illustrate what the, uh, what the Lord still loves Israel. Even though the people have turned to other gods and love to worship them. So I bought her back for 15 pieces of silver and five bushels of barley and a measure of wine. Which most of us say, what are you talking about? She got so deep into rebellion. She literally sold herself off to different men. And in order then for Hosea to even get her back, he had to pay a debt so that he could bring her home. You read through the rest of Hosea. 
and you hear the compassion. Why? Why would you go to these other lovers? Why would you try to get satisfaction from them? Why, why do you focus on the cheap thrills, Israel? Don't you understand that this will only bring pain and sorrow and hurt? I'm an unbelievable husband. I'm a husband that loves you. I'm a husband that's going to pursue you. Don't you understand? Listen to me. Don't compromise. Yeah, Hosea, he spoke with a broken heart. He listened to God and went to Gomer, paid the debt, and brought her back home. Oh, unbelievable. Chapter 4 starts some of the most passionate preaching you've ever read. The people are evil. The priests are evil. The leaders are evil. But God is loving and caring and perfect in His love. Yet Israel is prostituting itself. Look at Hosea 14. The very last words of the prophet, starting at verse 4. Then I will heal you of your faithlessness. My love will know no bounds, for my anger will be gone forever. I will be to Israel like a refreshing dew from heaven. Israel will blossom like a lily. It will send roots deep into the soil like cedars of Lebanon. Down in verse 8, O Israel, stay away from idols. I am the one who answers your prayer and cares for you. I am like a tree that is always green. All your fruit will come from me. Verse 9, let those who are wise understand these things. Let them discern. Let those with discernment listen carefully. The paths of the Lord are true and right, and righteous people live by them. Why stray from that amazing, unbelievable God? Why think that we are smarter than that God? And it's so easy, so easy for us to look back and say, you know what, Rick, a couple thousand years ago, I get it. But as you even heard Brendan talk in our worship, it's so easy to look at other people. But sometimes we need to look at ourselves. You see, think, I think God right now has a broken heart. Because there might be people even right here, number one, don't even know them. They've not come to a place where, where they understood that Jesus loved us so much he died on the cross to pay our debt so that we might be redeemed, we might have a relationship with God, and we might be able to live abundantly and eternally. But sometimes we take that step of faith and we become a son and a daughter of God, and, and we think that this book is just full of Lots of rules and regulations when this is a love letter. We understand who God is. We understand what our mission is. We understand how wonderful 
it is to proclaim faithfully the good news. Every time anyone runs from God, it hurts God. It hurts us. It hurts others. In fact, if, if you could follow me just a few moments here, I think a Christian's greatest struggle is their desires versus God's greater plan. Let me say that again. I think once you come to faith, the enemy will work really, 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 really hard. It will show you the fruit in the garden that is so absolutely luscious and the most best-tasting fruit in the whole world. It's a lie. But we pick it and we take a bite. God says, I have a greater good for you. I know you're going to have desires sexually that are outside my parameters. Mentally. You're going to make poor choices with your money. You're going to be rebellious. Because you think, I don't know what's best, God says. And God says, no. I do know what's best. I want what's best for you. You're going to fight this all the time. You need to trust me. Go to the brook, sit there, and birds are going to feed you. Really? Go to a widow. She has no more food other than this. Tell her, feed you first. Seriously, God? It seems so odd to me. God says, I will direct you. I will encourage you. I will strengthen you. I will. You know, God's relentless love calls each one of us home. It does. And my question is, even today, do some of you need to come home? Not your neighbor, not your son, not your boss. You. Do you need to come home? Recognize that you've been running from God. You know, we always end our messages with an upper story which focuses on God. And our, well, summary of our chapters today shows us again that God is just and God is loving and God desires a rich relationship and God desires you to experience life. That's our God. And when you get to know him, you are drawn to him. He's an amazing God. And there's a lower story. A story that we're reminded about, well, some of our journeys as we look at these kings or these prophets or the Israelites. But the enemy deceives. The enemy will continue to deceive. Remember, the enemy is a liar. I'm just letting you know over and over and over again. Whatever the enemy says, it's not the truth. Secondly, there is no God like God. We we don't understand God. He is so amazing. And lastly, quit dabbling. Quit running from God. Quit Worshiping two gods. Compromise. 
Quit worshiping you and quit worshiping God. You'll never be happy. Come home. Let's pray. Father, it's hard sometimes to understand all that you have for us. We think again that, well, certain relationships will bring us life, or a certain amount of money will bring us life, or a certain amount of power will bring us life. And Lord, actually, the enemy's right. It does for a very short time. But God, you're a good God, and you're a good Father. And you died to show it and desired deeply that we just walk with you. Lord, the enemy would love for us to worship you and worship us. We pray even now, God, that there would be a time where we would recognize our own rebelliousness. Lord, if there's anyone, anyone who, who is going their own way, doing their own thing, leaving you out of their lives. I pray even now, God, that there would be repentance. That there would be a time for us to be able to come back to you. We ask that, Lord. We ask that you would be gracious and merciful. And we thank you for who you are. We pray all these things in your son's name.